Hi, I'm Michael Croker, and this is Park Life. I've worked in the Australian theme park industry for a little over 30 years. And in this podcast series, I spend time in conversation with the people inside the business of making memories. Thanks for joining me. I hope you can subscribe, rate, and review. Enjoy the ride. Lynn Benzie has an amazing story to tell. She well deserves the great reputation she has around the world of big movie making. As the president of Village Roadshow Studios on Queensland's Gold Coast, she has been a force of nature in steering Australia toward the premier filmmaking location it is seen as today. We sat down together on the studio lot and talked a little about her inspiring life. So Lynn, thank you for joining us here on Park Life. It's great to have your company. Thank you. If we could just jump back, there's one thing I'd be interested to know, to know about you and the role that you have currently. Can you recall the first cinematic experience you ever had? Probably one that stuck in my mind was uh, Sound of Music, uh, which was in Leeds in Yorkshire where I was born. I remember my mum and dad taking me to a Saturday matinee and watching it at the Odeon Cinema. And can you recall if that had an impact on you? Um, no. <laughs> was there a film along the journey in your, in your, your years of youth that really hit you in terms of film? Uh, the one that I, I can watch it to this day is Ben-Hur with Charlton Heston. I remember the movie, because that's where the saying comes from, bigger than Ben-Hur, because mm. it's the longest cinematic movie ever made. And I remember we had an intermission in the middle of it. But I can still watch that movie to this day. Mm. It's just a classic movie. Um, I love the old movies. They're Gone with the Wind, but that Ben-Hur has always stuck in my head. Yeah. I can't say it was a, a light bulb moment that wanted me to work in film. It was just, for me, back then, I think probably was seven, maybe, I think. Um, it was just visually something I'd never seen before. Yeah. But I love the old, I've always loved the old movies, Anthony and Cleopatra, mm. uh, Gone with the Wind, and all those ones. I love, I could watch them even now when they have them mm. on the TV, I love watching them. It seemed that era had boundless ambition, that there was no, there were no boundaries. No. That was so big. Yeah, because at the time as well then, the Beatles had started to come when I was like five. Mm. We used to go, my sister and I used to go to a Saturday disco that went from like nine till 11, the mum and dad would drop you off and all the kids running around and the Beatles were playing and then their movies started to come out, like Hard Day's Night, and I remember yeah. going to see them as well. And so I think it's an era, I think we were lucky that we were able to go through that. I think people miss so much in this day and age of yeah. seeing that old, old school come through. I don't know if, if, if it's the same experience for you. I remember hearing an interview with, I think it might have been Paul McCartney talking about, it felt like coming out of post-war Britain that everything immediately was in black and white and then all of a sudden when the 60s hit that there was colour yeah and it, that seemed to happen in popular culture with film mm. and with music did, did you have a sense that the world was changing even as a young girl was there a sense that things were yeah and it's funny because I always remember my sister bought me a DVD hmm. which don't exist anymore uh, on the year I was born and everything was in black and white it was the first radio communication between London and Edinburgh. Uh, Elvis had just started. So when I watched that, that, vi that video, everything's in black and white. And you're right, then as you know, by five or six, we had black and white TV. And you're right, everything started becoming in colour and you were more interested in things because you'd look at TV, seeing that person. And then when the colour came out, you had no idea that person had red hair or, mm. you know, and how it changed that way. 
Mm. But it was nothing to do with the job that I've got now. It was just, I think in era back then, it changed so quickly and moved so yeah. fast. Can I ask, what, what lines of work were mum and dad in? Uh, my mum and dad originally was in the Navy. He, were, he left Scotland a year younger than he was supposed to and went in the Navy and he was in the Navy for a couple of years. My mum uh, met my dad when they were down because the naval base is down in Portsmouth in England and that's where my dad met my mum. He totally fell in, first girlfriend he'd ever had, <laughs> totally fell in love with her. Uh, I had my sister, uh, uh, my half-sister, which is um, to my mum's side and then I came along and um, you know and after that he left the Navy um, there's photos I remember and I obviously was too young that they lived in Scotland for a while with his sister then they went back to Leeds and my dad worked in engineering and then my mum worked for an audio company that used to make all the turntables and the speakers so they used to do all the audio equipment back then and all the decking gear and we used to go out and do a if we were a Saturday job or after school we used to go and then glue all the vinyl on the cabinets with the wood glue Wow. Yeah, so it's just, yeah. And we, did you have the one sister? Yes, I've only got one sister, yeah. yeah. So what was one of the first jobs when you were in the workforce? Can you remember what you were doing? I do. Uh, my mum and dad always had a rule that if I was still to get pocket money, even though I was old enough to work, I had to go get a Saturday job. So I worked in the shoe shop. So maybe that's where my love of shoes had come from, but I sucked at it because somebody would come in and say, I need this shoe, I'd go in the back and just stand there and come back out five minutes later saying, I, I, you can't find I can't it. find it. Why, why weren't <laughs> you looking for the shoes? <laughs> yeah, and unfortunately then one day somebody asked the shoes I had on, I really liked them, so I told them I got them from the shop up the road and the manager was behind me and I got fired. Wow. So it was like, well, okay, I learned that lesson. <laughs> and how long were you living in England before you eventually made your way to Australia and what led to that? My, I came out in 1980. So my sister and a group of her friends always used to go to New Quay, Bournemouth, Isle of Man for the season. Then they come back, back home and then one year they all decided let's all go to Australia. So they, I think there was five of them that came out. So they all traveled to Sydney. Um, I was engaged, funnily enough, back then at 20. Why you would, I've got no idea. Mm -hmm. But obviously back then, yeah, that's what you used to do. And my mum said one day, just go over for a holiday because my engagement had finished. And I went, no, I don't want to go, no, go, go. And I did. It was 400 pounds return. Went for six months, seven months and never went back. Never went back? No. I got back on holiday, obviously. Yeah. But no, my, I, I came to Sydney. And I remember it was the longest flight I'd ever been on. Mm. And terrified because I'd never been on a plane that big either. It was just, just one month before my 21st birthday. So there was a whole funny thing flying on the plane for so long. Yeah. I refused to go to the toilet on the plane because the old couple next to me asked me why. I said, but I could get sucked out <clears throat> and nobody knew I'd gone missing. Then you'd have to wow. tell my sister at the other end. So how naive you were back mm. then is hysterical. Mm. And yeah, and lived in Manly uh, for a couple of years. My sister and I, one of my girlfriends came over from the UK for a holiday. We hired at Holden Kingswood. Yes and went and travelled up north for three months. So on the Gold Coast, we lived at, stayed at the Caravan Park, which is now the casino. We went all the way to Cairns, uh, lived in Ellie Beach for a while. A working holiday? It was, yes. Well, originally yeah. for me, it was just a holiday. Yeah. And then we stayed on the Gold Coast for about, I think, three months from memory. 
and I got a job in doing waitressing and so did my sister, my other friend did as well. So and we were living in the caravan park where the casino is. Well, just to jump back a bit, when you said you came to Australia and never went back, and you know, mum had said, you know, go over and have a holiday and then you know, I guess we'll see you when you get back. Yeah. What was the reaction when you made the decision to not go back? How were mum and dad about that? Well, I think because I was originally only on a seven months holiday visa and then I applied in Sydney to get a working visa and they said normally they don't give you one unless you've been here a year. But at that time immigration was a bit easier to work with and it wasn't expensive. So they extended it for six months as a working holiday so they were happy for me to stay. But my mum and dad actually came out for a holiday uh, probably about eight months after I got here. They absolutely loved it. They were going to emigrate. I got my dad a job in Sydney to do the same engineering work that he was doing in the UK. Got approved by immigration, they're all going to travel out and sadly um, they got accepted six months later my mum had a stroke. Yeah. A very, very bad one. They'd sold all the furniture, given the dog away. Wow. And you get a year at the time when your visa's accepted to yeah. decide if you can come. So they kept waiting and waiting but my mum, was, it, she was really bad. So unfortunately they never they couldn't come and emigrate. They were so close, it was very sad. Mm. But they still came for holidays. You know, once my mum settled down, they came back, I think, about twice before it got too tricky. But, you know, it was such a shame because they would, they would have been here. Mm. Yeah. So on the, on the back of that holiday, what takes you into the workforce in Australia? Where do you end up? I think when I was in Sydney to start with, I worked for a finance company called Custom Credit which is finance, and I did PA work back in the UK because yeah. I worked in an engineering firm. And in the UK company, I ended up buying all the steel for the company, so I ran. I used to buy all the steel for all the gear that they used to make over there. So when I came to Australia, I, I'd done PR work, or PA work, secretary, and um, I worked for Custom Credit for a couple of months. We then travelled away with my sister up north and did waitressing. Went back to Sydney. What did I do after that? Oh, and I think, oh, yeah, I think I met my ex-husband at the time. <laughs> can, can I just ask you, what's, <laughs> what's driving you as, as a young person here? Because there's clearly a, a fire in your belly and there's, there's some fearlessness as well. And you're rolling the dice on yourself at a very young age. When you look back, do you have a sense of where that came from? Because obviously the journey is still going at this point, but it seems to be a pattern that you're not afraid to step out, back yourself and move. Well, it's weird because I'd never left home. And mm. I did not want to come to Australia, but my sister was here. And I think having my sister here made a big difference. Yeah. Eventually, when my mum got really sick, my sister did go back. But back then, at the time, I was married, so I was happy to stay here. Uh, but even when that all changed, I think I'd spent so much time in Australia. I found, and when I used to go back, it was quite funny because you didn't belong there because mm. you got the doctors, but you still you couldn't use your social security number, you had to fill a form to say you don't live here anymore. And it was strange because I think, mm. well, I've spent half my life there. And I just think I'd settled here. I had a good job in Sydney at the time, working for EMI Records. Uh, went to Melbourne for a couple of years, but I was still married at that time. And then came up to the Gold Coast because I did work, work for World Expo 88. <laughs> I was gonna hold you there for a minute because that's a big jump. How do you move from the initial work you were doing into EMI records? Because they're not even complementary industries. So how does that happen? No, I got, um, <coughs> I remember there was a, a PA role, the sales manager was looking for a PA. I applied for it because that's what I did. And I'd had odd jobs in between. I've done receptionist and because I worked in building industry back in the UK, 
Um, a job came up for a PA working for the sales manager, went and worked for EMI. Mm -hmm. was there for four years. I did eventually get promoted to working with the, one of the executives up on the, they called it the second floor, so I migrated a bit further up the food. I started on the ground floor. I went on the first floor when the sales department moved, they went up to the executive area and was with them, I think, for about a year. But that was a massive eye-opener. Um, it was a scene. It was a scene. Yeah. It was like... What, what era are we talking about? Uh, I was at EMI... I came in 80, I would have said been between 81 and 85. Right. So it was still at Castle Ray Street before it moved. Yeah. And um, and I've done PR work, but it, it's a whole different culture I'd never experienced. Mm. It was amazing. I mean, seeing all, you know, to go out for dinner with Freddie Mercury and Queen and to Come sit. Come on. Yeah. Just to sit across from them. Uh, my bosses had me sit in the middle. I wasn't invited at the time and I kicked up a stink. They said, oh, they just want single girls to go. And I said, I, I am going. No matter what you do, I am <laughs> wow. going to go. But to meet all those people and then like, you know, with Grace Jones and mm. all those people that used to come out, because the PR department was next to where my office, my mm. boss used to be. So we used to see, we go, you know, and you go to all the concerts with David Bowie and see all them. So it was a massive, yeah. massive um, culture change and I loved it. And they used to do um, conferences every year mm. and they were entertaining because they used to do shows at the end you know, and all the girls used to do, a sh you know, do a skit, and all the sales managers used to do one. So it's it's a massive, massive eye opener. When I moved to Melbourne, because uh, my school friend came out and she moved to Melbourne at the time. When I left EMI, it was very hard to get it out of my system because it's so dynamic. It was so different. It was unusual. It what prompted you to leave? We, I'd gone to see my school friend in Melbourne, yeah. and where they lived in Sunbury, there were blocks of land selling for like 15,000. Wow. So we just went, well, can't pass this up, it's so cheap. Yeah. Uh, went down there, built a house. I ended up working for uh, John Fairfax, uh, Sime Information Technology, who then did, um, they won the contract for World Expo 88 doing all the touch screens. And they had all this gear there, but nobody knew how to use it. Because I'd been a bit bored, I'd been playing around with it. Right. So when they got the contract, they went, well, there was another girl there, Lisa, who knew it really well. And I said, well, you two can both work together and you can design all the touch screens that were on World Expo 88. I had no idea what I was doing. So how did you manage to do that with no formal background uh, in the, the I remember the machine was in the office and then I used to just play, oh, what happens if I draw this little picture, what happens? I and mean, if you saw the technology back then, it's hysterical, mm. not like now. Mm. And then it transposed in and we did animation, we did research on the colours that people like to look at. And Lisa, who um, knew that side of it really well. And we just worked together and designed all the pages. And I don't, don't ask me how I worked it out, I've got no idea, but creatively and mm. you know, we had to do research of you know, the information pages, what you're looking for, then we had to convert it into uh, Japanese and Chinese and animate some of the people quite rudely probably back then. And yeah, and then I came up for World Expo, it was absolutely amazing. The weather was just phenomenal. Mm. And went, I can't live in Melbourne anymore. It's, it's really cold, I love it, the culture is amazing, but it was cold every year. I had all my winter gear and I just went, after coming up to Queensland, I went, nah, that's it. So there's a pattern of not second guessing yourself. I'm just curious, again, never at any point you seem to be second guessing what you might be able to do. 
I don't, it's, I don't, honestly, I don't know, I, I can't explain, mm. like even when I worked in the UK, I used to work in the typing pool. Then how I went from that to working with the buyer who used to buy all the steel for the coal mine locomotives who used to build, then he left. And I, they just said, you just keep doing it all. So mm. I was buying all this stuff. And then when I came to Australia, I did reception work, I've done waitressing, mm. I've done, mainly my background was PA secretary. Um, and I just, when I first came to Australia, I just, I said, I'll do any job, it doesn't worry me. Yeah. I've done dad arranging at Boys Town before I got the job here yeah. at the studio. And it's just, I can't explain it. Mm. I just seem to be very, very lucky in some of the jobs that I've come across. Did you have mentorship at key points along the way or were you kind of left to your own devices? I, not really, yeah, I was, I was left to my own devices. Yeah. I mean, there was people that I worked with that I, I'm always one of these things like whoever I work for, I've got the best hearing on the planet. Mm. You ask my staff, it annoys them so much, I can hear anything. Mm. So I'd be at my desk doing my work, but I could be listening to my boss talking to people in the office what he's doing. But then when you get the facts, I used to read every fax that came in, so I knew right. what he was talking about. Yeah. I can't explain it, but yeah. it was just that intuition that... Um, but there's obviously an inquiring mind there too, because you're, you're describing someone that's wanting to take in information and, and knowledge. Yeah. And then turn that into an action. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. it, I can't, I've, I've been very lucky, I think, the jobs that I've done. I mean, like when I've even done waitressing doing weddings, which I did on the go, because when I couldn't get a job. Mm. And as I said, before I got this job, I was doing data entry in Boys Town. Right. Um, because my, I used to be able to type really, really fast yeah. as well. Uh, absolutely rubbish at shorthand. I did go to business college in the UK and I could not master shorthand for the life of me. It sounds, I, like, it sounds <laughs> like you were never proud too proud to not do what you had to do. Yeah, yeah, because I think, yeah, and also like I look at, to me, the more I do, I don't think I could have done the jobs that I've done over the years that I wasn't so diverse. Mm. And working in engineering, that technical side of it, um, working in marketing and seeing how that works, working at EMI with the commercials and the, you know, meeting all those guys and how they work. So I think a combination of all them put together enables me, I think, to get where I am today. Mm, Just mm. a one-man band. What comes on the back of Expo? Uh, we went back to Melbourne, then we sold the house, moved up here. Then I worked for a building company called, uh, what was it called? Something exhibition. Uh, it used to make furniture, mm. bedroom furniture, and they did the, at the Oasis at Broadbeach. There used to be a butterfly that used to fly around the roof on a track on mm. a track rail. That was part of their branding, if I remember. Yes, Nikon Plaza, I think. Yes, it was, was it, it? was. Yeah. And I worked for the company that designed all of that. And then uh, that was when that was just built. And then they put the butterfly that used to fly around. And I worked with them. I was promoted to manager, but then the company got made redundant and closed down. And then I was <coughs> doing some work at Royal Pines doing the weddings in restaurants. And then this job hadn't come up and I was doing Boys Town Data Entry. I was doing it for about mm, two weeks. So you can blame me for all the mail that everybody gets now. Probably Again and again. Years. Yeah, again and again, yeah. Were there dreams? Like when you're doing a gig like that, were, were there dreams or were there aspirations beyond? Or it seems like you're in the moment, you give everything you've got in the moment in the role that you have and then you expand on that and then you move on to the next thing. But was there an overriding ambition and a dream a, a vision you had well no it's funny i can't no mm. there wasn't i mean i went to my 
parents paid for me to go to business school, which we did commerce and shorthand and typing as you did back then. And um, you know, they couldn't afford for me to go, but they managed to to put it together. But yeah. I just think I've been really, really lucky that every most jobs that have come up, that I've embraced it to learn from it, and knowing it's another feather in my cap for be able to move on. And then when this job came up as originally as the PA to Michael Lake. Um, I had all those attributes. I'd done marketing, I'd done PR work, I worked in engineering, and you had concreting, and you had to build a mm, building. Mm. And it just all meshed together to end up working for here for 30 years. I'm sure that's a good place to be at. I'm sure there would be people listening, wondering how do you move from data entering for Boys Town? <laughs> and if you jump ahead, <laughs> and you're now the president of village roadshow studios on the gold coast how does how does that happen i don't i've got a <laughs> <laughs> it's a hard one because a lot of people have asked me that and i honestly i think the one thing i've i've always learned over the years no matter what my job is i will do it to the 10th degree if I did waitressing, why does it work that way? How's the kitchen work? Hmm. Who's, why do you do it that way? I, you know, and yeah, and I've done some mindless jobs, and uh, but they've all had that little bit that contributed to me with my knowledge. So, you know, Boys Town doing that, it was just, and it was just a fluke that this job came up as a PA, because I was looking for work at the time through an agency. Um, Can we talk about that? What was that job specifically? It was PA for? Well, it was yeah. I think I think when I was when that, the the building company got made redundant, I went to do in Boys Town because at the mm -hmm. at that time I was just looking for work, and I was originally was secretary slash PA, mm -hmm. and I'd done the PA level a lot on a lot higher scale, and then this job came up working for Michael Lake. And what was Michael's role at the time? He because uh, the studio was just built in '86, and originally it wasn't owned by Village until 1988. They, that Dina De Laurentiis built it and they had Stanley O'Toole running it. But then when Village took it over, they'd approached Nick McMahon and Michael Lake, who work at Crawford's, to come up. They were doing um, what, Earth Force, I think it was here, or not Skippy, Skippy came later. Mm -hmm. um, and then Village approached them to come up to run the studio. So Nick focused on TV when he did Pacific Drive and Paradise Beach. Mm. I had a small role in Pacific Drive. We've still got the poster hanging around. I had somewhere. a very small role. I played a villain. It was a, obviously a soap opera in the 90s. I played a character called Jock Andrews, and I was in a full season. That's and the audition was for one line. And I came yeah. here for the audition, and I drove for almost an hour to get to the casting for one line. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to improvise. So I did the one line, but I gave it a monologue. I put it in the middle of a monologue. Yeah. And I thought, I'll just take a risk. And you know, the casting director's looking at each other, having a bit of a laugh. And then I got the call to the agent. No, they like you. In fact, they're going to give you more than the one line. Yeah. So Pacific Drive it was. For those that don't know, can we just go back in time to that period? What was the studio lot then? What did it look like? They, because uh, I know they'd already done uh, delinquents Callum and Og, they'd done Blood Moon, Blood Oath, um, and they were doing what they called back then the Silver Series. So when Michael started and I came for the interview, there was no theme park. 
there was no houses, there was no studio village. That's right. There was no, Wet n Wild was here because yeah. Wet n Wild had been here for years. But, but no Warner Brothers movie world and... No houses, no shops, no McDonald's across the road. So you either brought your lunch mm. or you'd have to go to Naran, which was what, 40, 45 minutes to an hour because there's no motorway. How many sound stages on the lot? Uh, they just, when it was first built, it was four stages. They just finished stage five when I started in 1990. And they were just putting furniture in. And that was the first one that had the tank in the floor. And the very first feature that we got was a movie that we were really well known for doing movie of the weeks back then, which is a bit like the Netflix projects. Um, there used to be a six week pre, four week shoot, two week wrap and they were done. The budgets used to be about five million and we constantly used to do them. And our first one that used stage five was a Von Zernick certain project called Survive the Savage Sea. And then the first feature film I remember when I started was Fortress with Christopher Lambert. Mm -hmm. Very excited. Yeah. Because I never seen a film, didn't realise how it worked, didn't realise how many takes they do on set. Yeah. And to go on set and then see yeah. the editing and... And now this is where that inquiring mind of yours probably takes over and you're asking yourself, how? Yeah. How's that work and why are they doing that? And you mm. imagine you're feeding all of that into yourself. Yeah. And because we're like, um, and because really we are a landlord in, in effect, that we are a dry hire facility. So we actually don't physically make the movies. So all the crew that come in and all the, the gear that they hire, they're freelance companies, so they bring it all in. But Michael at the time set up with, uh, got Panavision to set up with cameras. Back then we had uh, Film Lab, which is back then called At Lab. Then we had uh, Photon, which is a visual effects company. Uh, at Show Travel, who was a Sydney-based company, they came up and based themselves here. So what we tried, to, what Michael tried to do was create um, a one-stop shop. So you get everything here and you don't have to go find it anywhere else. Can I just ask you then, what came first? Was, there, was it a case of build it and they will come? Or was there a sense that there's untapped potential and there's, there's product and there's projects but no facility? Because I mean, it's a very bold move to say, let's put a studio lot in what was essentially, essentially bushland at that time it was a, on yeah, the it was Gold Coast. A, it was a farmland. What drove, what drove an, uh, an initiative like that? Was it knowing that there's potential, that there's work? I mean, I've looked at the old, um, we found uh, some old uh, newspaper clippings to work out why dear Laurentis at the time did a deal with the government. He got a very low interest loan. And if you look at old pictures that we have here, it is literally stuck in the middle of nowhere. Mm. But he, the first one off Cabrant he was going to do was Total Recall with Patrick Swayze, which then didn't happen. And then he did um, Wim Wenders Till the End of the Earth, I think it was called. But then Village, when he took it on in 88, they did then the Silver Series. But there's nothing I can find that says, why on earth did he stick it in the middle of, there was no industry, mm. there was no crew. And through Michael, um, she had work of, working together to get on-site tenants. Then the crew started to come up, like Daryl Sheen and Jeff Hayes started to move up because Nick and Michael knew them really well. Then the crew started to move up to the Gold Coast. So it was, I mean, they had, it did definitely had an industry here, but mm. not on the level that we had as years progressed. What was that like with Michael? What was your dynamic like with him? Did that relationship professionally develop in a way that you could be around and in conversations and dealings at a high level that you were taking in understandings of the machinations behind the scenes? Yeah, I think because I know when Michael interviewed me, um, I just got on with him really, really well. And it was, 
I just had this knack, I was always nine steps ahead of him, mm. a lot of the time. He caught me out a few times, but most of the time, I just knew how he thought. I knew what he wanted, and as time went by, he slowly got me to, um, because of being a producer, they're so used to doing it all themselves, and used to say to him, let me do some of the work, because, you know, um, you go out and market the studio, but I can run it. So, you know, running the air conditioning, the toilets and everything else, and having to learn how the air conditioning works, how the soundstage works, how the, it all works inside, the IT, the network, and then just slowly just let me kind of look after that side of it while he focused on marketing and selling the studio to overseas and used to travel quite a bit overseas as well. But I just did, had this knack with him, always nine steps ahead of him. Mm. I just knew how he thought. So it was, I was very, very lucky. And he sounds like someone that was inviting to you rather than sort of blocking off from how things are. It sounds like he was bringing, happy to bring you into the how all yeah. that happens. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and, it, and again, it come down, I think, a lot to um, when he was here again. I could hear these conversations on the phone. Even through a door, hmm. I could still hear. <laughs> That's the pattern. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, I'd read all about them faxes and those things as emails and all yeah. of that stuff. And, and he went on to produce a couple of films that were based here anyway. So a lot of times <clears throat> he'd go do that and then he'd just say, oh, well, he's, you know, keep going and keep what you're doing. But like the role I've got now, I do it all. Mm. I do Michael's role as well as still manage the site as well. But it's my curiosity of the questions that kept coming up. And because I've worked in legal, which I missed, I used to work for a law company up in Ailey Beach. Right. Because I lived in Ailey Beach for about three months. Yeah. And through my legal background, um, I used to then do all the contracts, but mm -hmm. then the questions that kept coming up all the time, I just said, well, why is it doing that? Why is it working the way it does? I need to understand it. Yes. So then if somebody asked me in future, I could say, well, it works this way because of that. This is what the chain blocks do. This is what the soundproofing does. So when we then built and expanded with stage six and stage seven and eight, I was heavily project management involved with it on making sure it was built right. Mm -hmm and doing all that side of it as well and, un and under budget under budget every time <coughs> most of the time <laughs> <laughs> how did you how long was that partnership with michael before michael moved on to something else? uh michael well he ended up moving to la still working for village because village have an office in la and still just to this day uh i think i've been with him for nine years then he went to la and still the figure of the studio, but then just they just let Village and Michael just let me carry on doing what I was doing here. Um, then he was over there, I'm only guessing now, maybe five years, mm -hmm. four years, because mm -hmm. all his family moved over there and everything. And then he left, because uh, WWE did three films here, the wrestling, and he ended up producing some of them and then they asked him to go work for them to do more movies back to LA. So then he left the village um, facility and then went back to LA for a couple of years. But back then he'd moved on from... But I've never forgotten though, and I've always wind him up on this. Mm. Friday afternoon, I think it was about three o'clock, and he said to me, uh, just to let you know I'm leaving and I won't be here on Monday. Wow. And I went, so it's three o'clock now, and you're going to leave at five or six and then come Monday morning, you're not going to come back. He said, no, 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 I've like, oh no, don't worry, I've told Village they're fine with it and they're happy and they're happy for you to take it all on. And 
it was like, wow. So obviously he had faith in me that I knew I could do it. So the conversation was led by him letting you know that this has already been determined and they're happy for you to yeah. slot into that role. Yeah. So How did you I, initially react to that idea? I'm allowed to swear. Yeah. I nearly shit myself. Yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> or like, because he had, because I mean, he's probably mm. he's my biggest mentor for sure because he was able to let me take on jobs and I'd made mistakes, there's no question, but I'd go back. But when it comes to the building and maintenance, he never got involved in that because that's what he never did. So I was very lucky, I think, because my extensive background, I was able to do all of that. But the budgeting for working out a budget for the studios and how much a film's going to cost coming in, how's it going to cost us to maintain it, he started to show me that years earlier. So eventually I'd do the budget for the whole year. So then he'd oversee it, make sure I got it right. And then, uh, but the maintenance side, he never got involved in it. So, uh, but the day he told me that, because then he's always dealt with the board. He's dealt with Graham and the Kirby's. I've never had to do that. And he'd go over and it was like, oh no. So what, for those two days that are before the Monday, what's going through your head? Do you, are there concerns about any particular obstacles you know you're going to have to face? Or, is it, or was it just a continuation of the theme of, you know what, I'll see where this takes me and I'll, apply myself. Was there any kind of self-doubt or fear? Well, yeah, because I've never had to deal with, deal with a village board. Mm. I've never had to go in a meeting where there's 12 of them around a table because mm. I've never done it before. I've mm. done meetings on the executive level. Sure. And that was the only thing going, what, what are they going to ask me? What, are they going to come up with something? I've now was like, me, I can do this, I can do this, just breathe, you'll be yes, fine, yes. it's okay, you've been doing it for a while, Michael's handed over the reins to you and, you know, and then I've very clearly remember the first board meeting and I was just going, oh my God, it's like, I don't know what they're going to ask me. And how did you carry yourself through that? What was that experience like for you internally? Uh, I was having a party on the inside. Yeah, it was yeah. like, you know, you need to, because I, when I get nervous, I talk quite fast. Yeah. And then people can't understand me because my accent gets worse. Yeah. So it's quite entertaining, but it's like, and I'd done it for so long and Michael had the faith in me, which was fantastic. Yeah. And he knew, and I knew I could do it, but he'd always done that next level. Mm. So, and then traveling to LA, which I do, well, not at the moment, but I started traveling to LA. I did it a few times when Michael was still in LA, I was able to still go over. So I'd started to network with all the clients over there. Can I ask you about that? Because there's the one thing of, keeping the facility running and organising budgets and, and ensuring that the administrative end of it is functional. But the the politicking of nurturing filmmakers and nurturing studios and making sure that the sound stages are active, that there's content coming into the state, into the country, that's a whole other machine, right? Reporting back to a board is a whole other machine. Yeah. And it all has its own its own way of working. What was that what was that process like for you when you started to move into the, the politics of movie making? Because I'd done, because I dealt with a lot of the clients, because when Michael used to travel to LA, he used to, back then he was going like five times a year. And unfortunately in LA, a lot of people are quite transient. They move around from different jobs to jobs. Um, but there was always like at Warner's back then, there was Steve Papazi and Bill Draper, uh, Disney, which is the same people I've known for 30 years, are still there. Hmm. Um, but going there, and it's quite funny because the city of Gold Coast has a film division and Screen Queensland used to come as well and we'd all go like as a team. But you'd always have to be on your toes when you go in there. 
it was quite interesting if you didn't know them how can you sell a shed which is basically what mm. I'm selling and it's all based on incentives so if the incentive is not there people won't come no matter how amazing we are and we have got an amazing reputation the labor film comes to comes to me first to look at well we need the studio can we get in but going over there it's because you have to on average you do about 20 meetings a week if you did it in the week and might, you might have a dinner with some clients but you'd start you know eight nine in the morning and driving i learned from driving and doing michael's itinerary where burbank is as right. opposed to santa monica that it might look short on a map but when you actually <laughs> get in the car it's an hour and a half not 20 minutes can, um, I, can i just ask you in that space because obviously now with the studios established as they are and the you know we could spend hours just talking about the projects that have come through the doors and that are continuing to come through. And I imagine the more that those projects come in and, and, and are successfully uh, conducted, that word spreads and the doors open up more freely when you're, when you're overseas. But in that initial period, were the, was it a harder sell? Yeah, because there were, there were the incentives there and the dollar, at one point the dollar was parity, so people just weren't coming. Then there was the writer's strike in LA for 18 months and there was nothing, absolutely nothing. So you are riding and at the mercy of a lot of factors that can come into it. Um, but everybody, all of them over there who know me really, really well, and I remember with Pirates of the Caribbean, we pitched for probably eight years to get one of those movies wow. here. And we, sh we do stop at nothing. What can we do to make it work? Can we build a new sound stage? Do you want us to, yes, you can dig the floor out. Oh, you want to take the door off the stage? You know, yeah, okay, yeah, fine, fine, we'll have a look at it. And, um, and then when we finally got it, and it was the first big one for Disney, and I said, you know, and then we help them sometimes look for crew. Um, they obviously know the production managers quite well but working with some of the companies, so we'll say, have you got a list of crew for production managers? So we'll help them do that. And, and as Disney said, you do go above and beyond. You're not just running a studio, you help with any, if you can't mm. work it out, I'll find out. We had one a couple of years ago that needed, a, we didn't have a, some facility we didn't have here, but I contacted TAFE up at Coomera, who was able to accommodate them. So they went up there and did some work. But I mean, I've had it where, we need to dig the floor out of the stage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah, okay, we'll have a look at it. Mm. Yes, we can, this is how we do it. Mm. I had one with stage eight, they wanted to take the two ends of the stage wall off to make it longer, <laughs> and then cut holes in the side of the stage. So when I got to a point of about two million, I did point out that having the holes in the side of the stage wall probably won't be very soundproof, but the cost was. But then we did the water tank with Fool's Gold. You know, they needed to tank, they funded it, and we built it you know, and built mm. it to spec. Mm. Um, Can I just ask you in that space, you're saying eight years to woo Pirates of the Caribbean. That tenacity that you obviously have in there to not surrender after year two, year three, year four, and say, you know what, that, that one's just lost. So what drives that in you when you say, okay, well, we'll just keep, we'll just keep this up until we have a win? And I think it's because, oh my, I wish I could answer that question, but it's more that, um, the crew get work because that's in my mind as well that and we're like the pond where the little stone that starts in the middle so they've got the incentives um, they're coming down to the studio here then I know it will employ all the crew then it'll employ all the local businesses 
So, and it's nice to see them all being employed as well. But if I know there's a film that I'll, I've heard of, I'll contact them, bring mm. it down here. What can we do? What can we do to make it work? Okay, it's not enough money. Like, well, we'll negotiate this deal. Let's do it this way and we do it that way and I'll stop at nothing. And they all know I'm dealing with them all the time. I will stop at nothing to try and get that film. That's the, okay, that's the thing I, I just find fascinating, that fire in you. Yeah. Which obviously hasn't faded. No, and I, you know, and it's hard sometimes because I'll be dealing with them, and I say, look, it's highly likely it's not going to come, but why? Hmm. Well, it's just the, you know the producer, director doesn't want to come here, or the actor can't get here because of his time shift. Well, what do we need to do to make we, you know? So I, I get uh, disappointed because think, oh, we've tried for so long, and. Uh, uh, tried for so long to get them and I put my heart and soul into it and they know when I deal with Disney and Warners and Netflix now and Paramount they all know me so well so when I don't get it and I go oh, I understand like Marvel yes. like when Marvel bought when Disney bought Fox in Sydney yeah I knew because they own Marvel and Lucas films and obviously we did Thor here mm -hmm. and I knew they were going to do another Thor yeah. and I thought great maybe there's a chance it will come here and then when I heard Disney bought Fox in Sydney I was devastated. And I emailed them and said, you know, it breaks my heart knowing that I might never get you back now after finally getting you here after all these yeah. years. But they just, you know, never say never. Because if we're busy like we're doing now, there's opportunities all over the place. Yeah. But they always, and they always reach, everybody reaches out to me and, you know, have you got the space? Where can we go? Where can we find? And where can we, City of Gold Coast with the film division, Screen Queensland. We found a couple of warehouse spaces, which has just happened with the two the Netflix one and the Ron Howard one. Did, was there a period where you can remember feeling like I've got my straps, like I've got this now at a, at a run? Once you went through that period of transition into the role, was there, was there a chapter where you thought, I think this is now starting to take and it's, I'm gonna find myself committing all these decades to it, no more hopping around. What, was there a period where you just thought, this feels like I've got this? No. No. I just. I can't explain why I'm here 30 years. Mm. I think because the, the, it is so varied, no day is the same. You've never been bored? No. I mean, when we had the writer's strike for 18 months and there was nothing, I was absolutely so bored, it was ridiculous. Mm. But it's always so different. And we have had gaps where there's been six months at times when the movie hasn't started when it's supposed to. In, in that space then, for people that don't understand how that works, when there's seemingly nothing happening, what is happening? in terms of what, what's going on behind the scenes to kickstart activity. So even now, so even like we, obviously with um, Baz Luhrmann being here, and even though I've got a film, even when we had Marvel, I'm st still then looking at the next year. I'm always way ahead, mm. I'm into next year, and I've been in next year for a long time. So if we get a project in, I advise everybody I deal with, this is what they've booked. But again, it's driven by the incentive and the dollar. Um, if that doesn't go right, it doesn't matter what I do, they won't come. Right. So we're, you know, we've been very lucky for six years. Again, with Thor and Pirates of the Caribbean, San Andreas and Broken, The Shallows. Hmm. Um, we've been very, very lucky. We're literally rolling in and rolling out. And then the Commonwealth Games. So I knew we were dealing with Thor at the time and they wanted a 40,000 foot warehouse space. Yeah. And I knew the games were doing boxing here and squash. Yes. And then they were going to build some other facility and I kept contacting council 
saying, give me the building. We can then diversify, it can be used for anything. Mm -hmm. So it's not just going to be stuck for one spot, it can be, and then it wasn't going to happen. And I kept, I kept going back to them saying, over probably four months, I kept nagging the nightmare out of them saying, yes. give it to us, we can use it. Marvel's going to come, they want a 40,000 foot square space. So they're not going to come in after the games. And then one day they rang me, said, have we got a deal for you. We're going to give you 11 million. Wow. And we'll be squash here. I then had to go to village and I'd say, have I got a deal for you? And they used to laugh because yeah. I'd go there constantly saying, I've got a deal that's for you. That's your and line. Go, yeah, that's yeah. my line. Oh, now yeah. what's she coming up with? And I said, this is the best deal. And I need another five and a half million. And we'll build the stage for the games. Then Marvel will use it when they come in. Fantastic. And they said, what's the catch? And I went, well, apart from you giving me five and a half. There's no catch. There's no catch. We get to keep the stage. Yeah. Fantastic. And then straight after that, Marvel moved in. And then straight after that, another film moved in, Dora moved in and Baz yeah. is in there. So it's been fantastic. That's a great story as an anecdote of just... I will stop at nothing. Yes, your tenacity and your ability to recognise that you're not trapped in a box with your thoughts. There is no box. No. How do we, how do we make it happen? Yeah, and it's got to make business sense as well. You have to look at it when you go and pitch it to say, well... Yeah. And I've done it a few times, and it's amazing that Clark supports us on a massive scale. It's also the business sense of it. So mm. I could build more facilities, mm. but it's a risk because we're still at the mercy of the incentive and the dollar again. Mm. So at the moment, because of COVID, Queensland has been so successful. Um, but again, you've got to put that package together mm. and kind of sell it. And obviously, I do quite well selling it. So, yeah. But yeah. And you obviously can't sit still, right? Because as you say, when that production is done, what's coming up the back? And if you're sitting still... You lose the window. Yeah. yeah. So it's always about what's the next 12 months, what's the next two years look like? Yeah. And because yeah. you do it like a lot of times, because people think that we hire all the crew and we don't either. Mm. So all the crew, as I said, the production's bringing their own crew. Um, but if I sat and waited to say like when Bat's finished, and then I went, all oh, right, now I've got a studio, too late. Yeah. You've got to think way ahead. So most of the time with, because Ausfilm, which represents the whole of Australia film industry to the international market, um, I will email all the studios. If I've got, uh, even when the Charlotte, when we built Stage 9, that was a major marketing coup for me because every film like Disney who said, if you build something bigger. Right. And then we say, we Paramount, if you build something bigger, and Warner's and then we did so it's been perfect so it's just always been way ahead you mm. can't wait mm. commercials are a bit different because commercials sometimes tend to be uh, short and fast and I always can pick the time of the year that they'll start reaching out to us mm -hmm. and having the t three water tanks here has been a help but now with streaming with Netflix and Stan and all those guys there's a whole different level of production that we can now tap into mm -hmm. and how can we be clever enough either get somebody that takes the whole site which is better for me because it's one film but when we've had three films in here and anything goes wrong they all blame each other right. then we have to look at the cameras yeah, to see right. who might have knocked the lamppost <laughs> over because they're blaming that film right. and not that one yeah and then they all start arguing about parking so um, yeah there's, uh, there's an old saying that you sometimes shouldn't meet your heroes. I'm just wondering, without telling war stories and, and giving away too much, but is there, 
Is there anyone in particular when you look back over those 30 years that impressed you for whatever reason that you just walked away thinking, oh, that's a that's an impressive person and it shocked you, caught you by surprise. So rather than a negative, someone that impressed you and you didn't expect it. it it's hard because people say you must meet all the actors, but mm. unless I contact the production to say, can I go on set and can I meet them? I feel as though I'm imposing on them mm. and then in the middle of shoots, or sometimes I'll be there and they walk past and say hello. Um, it's been so many. It's no one that had an impact where you just thought, oh, that's, that's surprised me. Um, I feel like I shouldn't tell a story out of school, so stop me if we can't <laughs> tell it and I'll cut it out. But well, Chris Hemsworth had a, a, you know, he was just very genuine. Right. You know, if he saw you walking past, he'd always say hello. Um, if you're on set, he'd say hello. He's grounded. Jason Momoa yeah. was the same. Well, for me, because I, I see a totally different side of what the crew might say. Sure. But even when um, Jason came back from Movie World to do the Warner Brothers exhibition. Yes. And he remembered me from a year ago. Right. You know, or if he'd see me out with his children, he'd say hello. Yeah. Angelina Jolie, when she came, because she was the director, we had to have meetings with her. Mm -hmm. The nicest person. Right. That was so, unbroken. Yes. Yeah. Unbroken. Mm. And even more exciting when Brad came down with the children. Ah, there you go. <laughs> I, I'd, I'd love to, we won't stay on this subject for long, but I just want to very quickly touch on, if you don't mind, I just love that story you told me not so long ago about Mel Gibson and oh, yeah. his calves. Can we can we tell that story? <laughs> I don't want that. <laughs> we, we, we can leave it there and just leave it to people's imagination. No, because he, he, <laughs> <laughs> he has been out a few times because he came, originally came out to scout for um, Hacksaw Ridge. Yes. And um, he's... <laughs> <laughs> He's a very fit person. Very fit. Yeah, and he had he had shorts on, and we were just talking, and we had to go to the tank, yes. and we had to go to the yeah. And I sometimes, and everybody knows me really well, and this is why I think they find me quite funny. That sometimes my mouth does not work with my brain. You don't filter before you speak. Sometimes there are some very funny situations, uh -huh. and that I've had even when I've travelled overseas that mm -hmm. something's come out, and they and they all know me so well. They've just they're not surprised. No, they've mm. lost it. And he was um, at the <laughs> tank and he come back down and he had the shorts on and I just turned around and said, oh my God, your calves are amazing. And it was like, I don't think I should have just said that. Yeah. But anyway, he just laughed. He and laughed. he took the compliment? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah he just <laughs> laughed. Yeah, I'm known for sometimes my brain does not always work with my mouth. When you look back at that career that you've had, and again, you probably can't tell me a single moment, but is there a moment of real pride if you had to recount it and say, you know what, I'm really proud of that? Was there a single moment that you could look back at and say it stands out? I think if I look at where the studio started with the four stages that we have and then Village came aboard with the fifth one, and then project managing building stage seven and eight, Nine, the tank was a coup for me because the fool's goal, but nine for me was a, a major coup for, to, to get it from where it was to not having anything, to suddenly getting the money, work, getting village to agree to it, building it that fast. We had to build it in five months. Mm. Um, was for me, every time I drive past it and I went, yeah, you know, I built, not literally built it, but I yeah, project absolutely. managed it. But we used to joke though because the, you know Michael working at Movie World yeah. and you know me really, really well. Yeah. Um, I always joke with group projects when we're dealing with builders. Yeah. And I'd say to them, have you, have you told them what I'm like when I start? And I went, no, 
we're going to let them find, let them out, find, the hard, out. Uh, yeah. find out the hard way. And they used to watch me sometimes and they said, yeah, your filter wasn't there when you were building soundstage. Because yeah. they'd see this five foot pink work boots, pink hard yes. hat, pink jacket, skirt or a dress on going on the stage and yeah. go, oh, this, she doesn't know anything. Yeah. So it used to be quite entertaining. They'd mm. just stand back and watch me. So it's mm. very funny. But you have to. You can't, I feel, it, it's a very male-dominated industry mm. as well. Mm. And the challenges that I've had over the years, mm. you have to stand your ground, but not be, um, how's, what's the word to use, not be, not, n not nasty with it, or it's just been, not, I'm here to make a film and make sure they're happy. If you overstep that mark working that film is here mm. at the moment, then unfortunately then, you, you know, I'll say what I have to say. Can we just touch on that before we get to the back end? Because I think that's an important thing, and I don't want to miss the opportunity to ask you about it, particularly for for young women that might be listening as well. When you say it's a very male-dominated industry, and there's no doubt about it, you've obviously made sure that you describe getting onto onto the site and wearing the pink boots and then having the the pink umbrella, whatever it might have been, and knowing they're going to be making assumptions. Yeah. And then they, when they're dealing with you, they're just dealing with someone that knows their business and knows what they want. Mm. And it's not so much about that person's gender, it's, it's about their character yeah. and their, their vision and their self-awareness. They know who they are, they know what they're about. And I know we could sit here for a long time and unpack all of that through the, the lifetime of your career. What advice would you give young women particularly that are walk, walking into an industry that may have been traditionally male-dominated in terms of owning your truth, owning who you are and pushing through? It's a, it's a hard one because it's changed so much in 30 years has, yeah. and I know like there are a lot more women in film coming through now and not just in the film industry, just in general. Mm. The building industry has its own mechanism and it's just sticking to your ground and being confident in yourself and I, I've got a side of me that I might not be confident about but I don't let that come through when I'm dealing with a certain issue or what I have to do and it's like well if you don't like it, then I can't work with you. Mm -hmm. But it, it's, it, I've had people say you have a very good, uh, you have a very good knack of doing it. They've watched me on how I managed to get them to think. Or if I give an example with production, with my staff, if it gets too curly, I said I'll go out and deal with it. Once they, once they said, don't worry, Lynn will come and talk to you. They go, oh, no, it's okay. It's sure. Fine. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> and I, do, I don't know whether it's because I worked in engineering with yeah. three hundred guys on a shop floor. Yeah. There you go. Probably being bullied at school. Yeah. I don't know whether that all came to it to go, if I don't stand my ground, and mm. we're all human at the end yeah. of the but day. But all those layers from childhood are, are the foundations of your character. Yeah. So it all, it all has, has value. Yeah. Last question, and thank you for, for sharing so much in the, in the time we've had. What drives you still after 30 years? What excites you? Yeah. Um, don't know. <laughs> is there I can't believe I've just gone totally silent and can't come up with a... It's the same two questions I ask whenever I'm finishing. It was the, about it's the proudest moment. And then what, what still gets you motivated? I look... I, and it's like every job you have moments where you go, oh, what am I doing? Sure. And I think that's just normal and part of life. You mm. have dates sometimes where you just, just, I just don't want to do it anymore. Mm -hmm. But it's the thrill of the chase of getting the film. Mm -hmm. So even though, like, I know with Baz... I used to film in Sydney. And there's certain producers, directors that I don't ever pitch for because 
they just don't want to come to Queensland. So when that opportunity arose, it was like, it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, you know, when Disney came out, it's the thrill of the chase. Yes. Knowing I can email the Netflixes and the Disney and the Warners and yeah. say, have you got anything coming up? Let's talk, let's start talking. What can we do? What package can we put together? It's just that thrill. And then when I get them in, and it's, it's like a family, because mm. if you think most of them can be here for nearly a year, yeah. And you interact with them so much, and then when they leave, it's such quite sad. Mm. You kind of go, oh, they've mm. all gone now, and then, okay, next one comes in. I say to um, my staff, and, and even though it's not your fault, it's still your fault. And even if it is your fault, it's still your fault. And if it's not your fault, it's still your fault. And you just say, don't worry, we'll fix it, you'll be fine. Yeah. But I think, yeah, it's hard to be motivated after 30 years, but I think because it's so different every time. Yeah. It's like, I, can we expand? What do we need to do? Have I got a film coming looking at the big tank? Yeah. Um, we have to start getting that ready and how it's going to work. You know, we have to sort of, and I know how the tanks work really well. We've, I've seen some massive disasters because they don't listen to us. Sure. And there's another whole story on yeah. that line. Um, but motivation is just like, it's just different every day. Great it's way a to challenge. finish. Yeah. Different every day and still a challenge after 30 years. Yes, so they always joke I'll be 95 and still in my wheelchair, wheeling around. Calling the shots. Yep, don't park there and don't park there. The parking is my pet hate. I always say that people don't make me come out and tell you about parking. It's been a great hour. Thank you for making time here on Park Life. Really enjoyed it. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed this latest episode. You'll find Park Life on Twitter and me, Michael Croker, on Instagram at Mike underscore Croker. See you next time.